Hi, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. How we respond to the COVID-19 crisis is on everyone's mind these days, and one of the top priorities for companies after ensuring the safety and health of their workforce is preserving and managing their cash, and appropriately communicating those steps with investors. In this episode, recorded in April, we discuss proven best practices to ensure liquidity during rapidly changing conditions. First, I'd like to introduce our guests. Kevin Carmody is a senior partner based in our Chicago office and is one of the founders of McKinsey's Transformation Practice. Tim Kohler is a partner in our Stamford, Connecticut office and is a founder and leader of our corporate finance practice. Tim's also the lead author of Valuation, the seventh edition of which will be published in May. Ali Owens is an associate partner in our Boston office and a leader in our corporate finance practice. Kevin, Tim, and Ali, it's great to have you with us. Kevin, let's have you start us off by going through the main levers you see for optimizing cash in the short term. So we at McKinsey set up a centralized cash war room just to react to colleagues and also clients to give them advice on how to navigate through this unprecedented crisis. What we set out to do initially was putting in place best practices around what to do in this near-term crisis, but making sure that we're balancing that with the decisions that have to be made to ensure that companies are emerging from this is strong a position as they possibly can once demand began to gradually recover. We broke cash into four specific buckets, starting immediately with working capital, the steps that can be made to optimize receivables and payables, inventory as well, which is tougher in a changing demand environment, but also looking at some of the near and medium term levers that can be pulled. We've got some stories around the balance sheet things that companies are doing to unlock some of the value that typically gets hung up on the balance sheet, operating expenses, some of the other decisions around steps that need to be taken, unfortunately, in the near term to stabilize a business, but position it for growth once we come out of the trough. And then other basic spend controls around CapEx, other discretionary spend, indirect spend that we think can be taken very quickly. So how quickly do companies need to implement these measures? What we found to no one's surprise is that there's an absolute need for speed. And what we've seen is that companies have tried to do downside and severe downside case scenarios in the near term, trying to understand what the impact of the business is. We do think there is an opportunity to develop some enhanced forecasting tools that on a cash basis is looking at the next fiscal quarter, but breaking that down into individual weeks, or frankly, on a daily basis, that will provide enhanced information and data to not only Treasury, but to the entire organization around how cash moves throughout the organizations. And that's actually shifted to really saying tactically, what is it that I need to do today to conserve cash? It's very important initially, if you haven't done it already, to make sure that very clear and concise talking points that come from either the CEO and or the CFO get communicated not just to the executive team, but to the broader management team about what it means to develop or enhance a cash-based culture. The cash culture and that protocol communicated throughout the organization is important. There's a two-way set of communication, not only the top-down communication around what we're doing, but the feedback from the different parts of the business that impact liquidity and making sure that funnels through the cash nerve center, but also to the executive suite real-time. Can you explain a little bit more about how the cash nerve center works? We found real value in implementing a cash war room or a nerve center 
that typically would be physically housed in Treasury. In the virtual world, it's still run by the Treasury group and the finance team, but making sure that there's a small group of people that touch the entire organization. So think in terms of various functional leaders, operations, for example, other areas of the business that have real input and real visibility into what is happening to the company real time so that we have the best information that nerve-centered If you're a manufacturer, you want to make sure that you have folks from production, whether it be a production supervisor, the COO in some cases, having a few people across the organization that will give you at least 80% of what you need to know to manage cash is important. Now, this is tough because the folks that you want to pull into the nerve center are the folks that are driving performance, but I think it's critical to make sure the time is carved out each day to do that. So the shift is basically being more nimble and adjusting the operating model so the information flows real time less on packaging that information, frankly, and more on what are the critical data points that the executive team and other members of the management team need to know so they can quickly make decisions to adjust in a constantly changing environment. This nerve center takes into account all things related to liquidity, whether that be the current liquidity position, some downside scenario modeling, or the basic tactics around how you collect cash and how you spend cash, but also to make sure that you're extending the cash runway as long as possible and making the decisions with an eye that demand will recover at some point in time and you want to optimize that outcome so you can snap back as quickly as possible. So it seems like some of the people in the nerve center are also dealing with the crisis response right on the front lines. How do you manage the time constraints that those folks face? If we pull those folks out of their line roles, it's not atypical to have somewhere in the ballpark of seven or eight relatively senior people that are in the middle of that cash nerve center. The way that it should work is less on process and more on substance and reducing the cycle time. So there's a daily call or meeting virtually that is no more than an hour. And that is split between what's the latest intel that we're seeing from the business and then the next 30 minutes around specific actions that we need to take to preserve cash, adjust to the situation correctly. It's uncomfortable because folks are being pulled out of their line roll, but if it's done daily, with real substantive information, with an action towards making decisions that sets companies up in the best possible way to deal with this type of crisis environment. The other thing, which I'll just touch on briefly, because I do transformations on a daily basis, that whole infrastructure around driving performance rapidly in the ordinary course, that works. The discipline around closed loop discussions, how you take action, how you communicate across the organization, all those are fundamental to a highly performing transformation. That pivots almost with a 100% correlation to what we're trying to do on the cash front. So I would say maybe reprioritizing that into cash for the next 90 to 120 days is really, really effective. Can you go into a bit more detail on how the cash war room runs and what's discussed there? The first thing that I would look at in that 60-minute meeting is daily cash balances throughout the organization on a consolidated but also consolidating basis. What has changed? What are the risk factors? I would do that within the first five minutes just to set the tone on how we're doing from a liquidity perspective. And that's cash. That also could be the credit facility, the discussions that you're having with your bankers, how that has changed. I would set the stage immediately on that. And then I would walk through our priorities for today. How do you look at the prioritization of payments that are teed up today? And what adjustments have to be considered to either make those payments because they're critical potentially defer those payments or cancel them all together. That's part of the spend control tower concept. The nuance here is balancing what is a crisis mode optimization of cash with decisions that could materially impact in a negative way the business 
when you come out of the downturn. So always have a mindset around what's the impact of the business over the medium term? What's the impact of the safety of our employees? Those factor into every one of the decisions. And during the 60-minute session, those are guiding principles about the decisions that have to be made. And then it gets much more tactical around how do you look at specific spend requests. So how do you establish and then reinforce this idea of the cash culture throughout the organization? Frankly, when we talk about the cash culture and how that gets communicated through the organization, those are the silver linings of these types of crises. Who's doing it right? And how do we reward those folks that are bold, folks in the plant that look at a different way to run a production line to reduce spend without sacrificing quality, safety, and customer fulfillment? How do we highlight those cases and get that communicated to the organization? The other side of the fence is, who are the people that, for whatever reason, are not understanding what it means to drive a cash culture and how can we help that change the behavior? How do we get to the point where people actually understand what it means to adjust their operating model? These types of discussions should happen in the daily cash nerve center meeting. Thanks, Kevin. Can we talk a little bit more about the spend control tower and and what role it plays? So within the cash nerve center, one of the key elements is spend control towers. This is nothing more than a, uh, a catchphrase that says, how do you put a choke point around cash? This is important because when we've done this, even not in crisis, we've seen a material shift in how companies think about spending cash and the results have been achieved very quickly. I'll use a manufacturing company to uh, offer the point. Setting up a centralized spend control tower that looks at all the payments that are teed up today, but also looking at the demand in the coming days and weeks, more the demand management side is really effective. We've rolled this out centrally, but also at different locations to put a finer and more rigorous lens around how people think about spend. What we would typically do is say, if you could set a baseline in this environment, what are you typically spending and how do you think about those decisions? When we've been able to control the spend in a very organized fashion and collaborating with folks throughout a company, we've seen material improvements in spend. It's not unusual in the first few weeks to find 10 to 15% reduction in spend in times that are not in crisis. As people start thinking more quickly around what they need to do today to preserve cash, having this structure around evaluating and working alongside the different functional leaders will unlock ideas around what they actually need to run their business. So you'll have new ideas that come to the forefront when we collaborate in a different way. We've also found that having an increased level of accountability tightens the belt a bit which changes behavior immediately. And I'll give you an example. It's not uncommon in these daily spend control towers to look at large spend and having challenge sessions saying, why do you need to make that payment? And having people adjust the way they're thinking, that might be something they absolutely need for the reasons that we mentioned. Safety, it would shut the line down otherwise, customer fulfillment. But there's also instances where we found people say, you know, we actually don't need to make that payment today. That seems simple, but it drives massive cash impact We think it's a real game changer in the near term, especially in moments like this where you're controlling spend. If you look at the immediate reduction around direct spend, 3 to 5% could happen as early as in week one. Eliminating the red tape, policy adjustments in times of crisis that generate real benefits. So it, it sounds like the questions that come up in the spend control tower are essential to instilling that cash preservation mindset that you referred to earlier. This goes back to the cultural element. The way that folks think about spending has got to be embedded in the culture. And you see that operating model shifting, if done correctly, where people almost become owners of the business saying, what is it that I need to do today to make sure that I'm running this business effectively and optimizing cash? I talked about setting it up centrally, but making sure that you're going through, whether it be divisions, 
BUs or plant spend control towers. There's a balance between having a centralized hub that makes decisions for things that impact headquarters, but also consolidating that information across the organization. Nobody knows better what happens in a plant than folks that are actually running the plant. So engaging plant supervisors, for example, is top of mind. I think the byproduct of this, because it is action-oriented, is that you see behaviors change immediately. And when you go to the people that actually understand the issues the best and can help provide color on the decisions that have to be made, that's critical, as opposed to having a top-line influence. It's also critical because the nerve center asking the right questions and in a very constructive way, pressure testing whether the answers from the line leaders make sense. That collaboration really works. It's a trust-based relationship. For some companies, the recent demand drop has been so steep that entire lines are getting shut down. How does the framework that you've taken us through differ in times when you just see a complete bottoming out of demand? Are there any differences in how they should be approaching these different measures and decisions? Well, the principles are the same. The difference is a sense of urgency. I had a conversation earlier week where some folks said, well, if you're saying we're going to not make this statement, is it a deferral or a cancellation? What was it? trying to be uh, flippant, but I said it doesn't matter. We can't spend it today. We can reevaluate it in 30 days' time because we can't see demand. The one major difference that I see is the importance in, in calculating the number. What is the cash position today? The cash on hand, unrestricted cash, plus real availability to your credit lines. What is that dollar amount first? And then running through the scenario modeling that we talked about a few minutes ago, if you have a realistic yet dramatic downside case, What does that do to your cash runway? We've talked with clients that had nothing more than several weeks of liquidity when we started this. And then as we went through setting up the cash nerve center and prioritizing how we run business, we've been able to extend that cash runway by months. So from a couple of weeks where they're potentially in trouble to a couple of months, that's probably the only way in my mind that you can really adjust to this type of environment. You're living in an incredibly uncertain time where demand is changing daily. And that's why having the discipline around making the decisions as if every dollar matters, but being nimble enough to put new information into those models that basically sets you up as best as possible to get through this downturn where demand recovers. But it's highly uncertain. It's much more stressful, of course. But I think the principles and the tools that we've used even in the ordinary course are directly applicable to this situation as well. To shift topics a bit, how should companies approach decisions around whether to draw down lines of credit? And how does that fit into the framework you've just shared? That's a tougher question. Some banks will say draw it down, others won't. I think every company is different, but I think applying that methodology where you're looking at your cash position and some downside cases, and then making a judgment call as to whether you think it's prudent to draw that down and have more liquidity versus not is important. I would say, given the work that I do, If I was in the CFO's chair today, I would want more liquidity than less. So I would look really hard at making sure I unlock all sources of value, cash on hand today, access to a a revolver, drawing that down. But also what we found is there's a ton of value held up on a balance sheet that can be monetized. So I would look across the entire organization to try to understand how I can boost my liquidity. Thanks. So how do you strike the balance between maximizing your liquidity in the near term while also keeping an eye on maintaining your competitive position for when you come into the recovery? What I would say is uh, always have an eye towards how do you compete as effectively as you can, as strong as you can coming out of a downturn, but it's a cash optimization game in the short term. So the decisions our clients are making are difficult because we know that they negatively impact the business, but those decisions also enable companies to survive a day, week, for months. So that's 
unfortunately, the situation that we're in, it would not be uncommon to see retailers, for example, that are conserving cash with a massive drop in sales given that stores are closed, making decisions now that will extend that cash runway. Getting to the point where you survive and can open your stores with merchandise is what we're solving for. The reality is, if you're shorting your merchandising strategy, you may not have the right assortment when you open the doors, but you will be able to open your doors. And then there's a lot of repair that will come to play in the coming months. The second problem that we have to solve is, given the choices that are going to be made, leverage is going to go up as you borrow more cash and you have to repair the business. So there is certainly a question with creditors around how do you recapitalize that business? You have to take it in chunks and and it's tough to balance to make the payments when you absolutely have to defer them when you can defer them. And it's less than optimal, unfortunately. Thanks so much, Kevin. Ali, can you now take us through how to balance the urgent liquidity considerations with potential structural changes that could further improve a company's long-term working capital position when the crisis passes? So one of the things that we've been thinking about a lot throughout this recent crisis is that there's, as Kevin mentioned, many immediate needs from a liquidity standpoint, and that absolutely has to be addressed first. And I think Kevin did a great job speaking to many of those just now. We've also seen that companies who take a deeper look at what their cash position is in terms of their ongoing operations have had more resilience during this time of crisis, but also are positioning themselves for growth in a way that when they emerge from this down cycle will be um, very well positioned competitively. There's one element of how do we think about near-term payments, receivables, and there's another that, that addresses topics like how do we think about our commercial front-end strategy? What are the products we offer? How do we drive towards commonization? And what does that mean for our inventory? And what does that mean for our financial outlook? How do we think about the way we're engineering for manufacturability? How do we think about when we go to market, where we negotiate advances? A lot of these topics are longer term and they can be pretty challenging to execute. But the folks who are doing this very well are both much more comfortable in the current environment and likely to capture a lot of the uptick going forward. So how are companies able to address these questions amid the current uncertainty? It's actually a really challenging ask. Optimizing working capital, it's a thousand or more decisions taken daily by employees at all levels. In the near term, the leadership from the CEO and CFO is critical in terms of setting the culture. But the execution on a day-to-day level is really, really important. And we often find that there's a lot of buffer built into various decisions or historic behaviors that are more oriented towards different metrics that aren't cash, that drive behavior that is negatively impacting the financial position. So for example, you you have the warehouse manager who is always gonna be concerned about, do I have enough parts to keep the lines moving? and often are not concerned about being short one part because typically that's not as much of a downside risk. You know, then you have the accounts payable specialist who has been paying things as they come in and that's the way they've done it for 30 years. So the changes that actually um, infiltrate the organization have to go all the way down to the front lines in order for us to really see an improvement in the working capital position Another factor we often see is um, pressure from CFOs and finance teams that say, well, let's just make sure we meet the quarter-end revenue targets. 
trying to transition that a bit more to a long-term view can have massively positive um, impact on your cash position. Have you seen clients that have implemented this approach effectively? I'll touch on quickly a company that we worked with recently that did this deeper look into a cash mindset across the full organization. It was a highly complex business with a lot of regulations and really long lead time on all of the parts. And they also had locations all over the globe. And what they did was created a virtual global warehouse, both looking at what do I have in-house, as well as what is on outstanding POs coming in, and what do I project going out to figure out what are the coverage ratios and how do we actually run that down and how do we pool inventory between locations. So inventory was a big, big focus here. They also have a lot of project work. They were able to shorten the lead times of those projects given the fact that they knew where the inventory was and they had leaner operations as a result of that visibility. The impact was uh, $4 billion in, in CFOA. And they actually were able to create entire different systems of visibility for their inventory across the entire organization, which takes a while. But some of these longer-term levers can actually free up the cash for growth and put you in a place to be resilient. Thanks, Allie. Uh, Obviously, many investors are also concerned these days about companies' cash positions. Tim, how should finance executives communicate with investors about the measures that they're taking to preserve cash? I think there's two things that you want to keep in mind as a starting point. Uh, One is, who is your target audience? You have investors who've been with you for years. They understand you. You know them well. You also have investors who could be long-term investors, but maybe the share price was too high and they didn't feel like buying in. That's one set of investors. Investors who are likely to be there for the long term once the crisis is over. Then you have another set of investors who are looking to trade in and out based on short-term pieces of news that might give them an opportunity to make some quick profits. And each of them has different needs and different interests. So one of the things you have to do when you think about communications is who's your target audience? We obviously think that it's the longer-term investors who should be the target audience, particularly when it comes to the valuable time of the CEO and the CFO. The second thing as you think about investor communications is what is your situation as a company? Are you going to struggle just to get through the crisis? Or are you the kind of company that have a lot of liquidity going into the crisis? You may want to think about things differently depending upon sort of which type of company you are. So those are the two things as a starting point. Now, in terms of best practices, you know, you're getting calls all the time from your from all kinds of investors, particularly your important investors. In many cases, you may have to communicate earlier than you want to. And so try to be systematic. Do you want to wait till the quarterly call or do you want to come up with something sooner so that investors know that you have a good handle on it? So be prepared to perhaps accelerate some of the communications if necessary. Be prepared to provide some detail that maybe you traditionally haven't provided. In terms of the content, investors need to understand exactly how COVID-19 is affecting your business, right? One of the things you should always start with is, you know, safety of employees, customers, suppliers. What are you doing there? That's important. Investors want to know that those are priorities, right? And obviously, prediction is very hard in this environment. So you want to focus on how has the pandemic affected your business to date, let's say. And and in particular, how has it affected the supply chain? How has it affected demand? And what can you do about those kind of things? Are you able to sort of get the supplies you need if you still have demand? If demand is going down, what's driving that? Then I think you need to think about how the pandemic is likely to affect your business over 
a longer horizon. Here's where you need to have a number of scenarios and be able to explain to investors under what kinds of scenarios are you likely to be able to emerge quickly strong? Uh, what types of scenarios will you be under stress? And you'll need to be cutting everything. Uh, under what types of scenarios will you actually be in good shape? And then finally, you might want to think about giving some more detail than you normally do, particularly if you have a regionalized business. Investors like to know how this is affecting you regionally and what are you learning from the places where you're currently operating, where it's, where is a virus hotspot versus maybe where it's passed or where it's about to happen. You also want to demonstrate that you understand what your competitors are doing, what others have done in related industries, so that you're showing that you're applying the lessons that you've learned. What about specifically communicating issues around liquidity, Tim? Investors obviously want to know about liquidity. They want to know how much liquidity do you have to manage the downturn if it is prolonged, right? Do you have a refinancing is coming up that you're going to need to deal with quickly? What are you going to do about those? They want to know that you've done a thorough analysis and you have a very good handle on how much liquidity you have to get you through a prolonged downturn. Now, that said, there will be companies out there that have liquidity and can actually take advantage of the situation. You want to maintain long-term investment so that as you recover, you're in a better position. So maybe certain capital spending, you don't want it to delay. You don't necessarily want to cut back on all of your R&D indiscriminately. If you have the liquidity, you want to make sure your suppliers and the customers are there when the recovery begins, right? Maybe in a limited number of cases, you may want to extend credit to some customers or pay earlier for some suppliers. Investors want to know what you're doing. So is the most critical thing simply to convey to the markets that you're a going concern in this environment? Yeah, I think that's right. I think long-term investors realize that even in normal times, it's very hard to predict demand and supply and disruptions. And today, with everything changing on a daily basis, longer-term investors would think that you're being perhaps a little bit naive if you think you can hit a target for a quarter. So focus more on actions that you're taking and convincing them that you've got the ability to survive over the longer term. Kevin, Ali, Tim, thank you so much for sharing your perspectives with us today. And thank you to our listeners for joining us inside the Strategy Room. A transcript of this podcast will be posted on McKinsey.com under the Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page, where you may also find links to previous episodes. And if you'd like to receive our latest insights, you can sign up for email updates on our website, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with our community on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to having you join us for our next episode of Inside the Strategy Room.